This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Sam, Caleb, Noah, Caleb, and Benton. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question. And as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. First things first, serious questions. This time we have one from Sam and one from Caleb. Not long ago on the big question, I answered a question about my favorite book of the Bible, and I chose Hebrews. Sam asks, why is Hebrews your favorite book of the Bible? Now, there are a hundred reasons that I could give you, Sam, but I'm going to give you just two, the main two reasons that Hebrews is my favorite book of the Bible. First, Hebrews is deeply Christological. In other words, everything has to do with Jesus Christ. So if you start reading the book of Hebrews, right at the beginning, it starts with the Son, with Jesus, and describes him as the heir of all things. He is God's ultimate revelation of himself to us. And as you keep reading, the book builds on that theme, and it starts to paint a picture of Jesus as the mediator or the go-between of a better covenant. He's better than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He is our great high priest. Now, there's a second reason why I love this book. In addition to how Christological it is, Hebrews is deeply covenantal. In other words, it has to do with God's covenant promises to his people. So Hebrews ties together the Old and the New Testament and shows that there's just one plan of salvation that goes through the entire Bible, and that plan is driven by God's covenant promise to save. So in Hebrews, we see how Jesus' death and his resurrection is a fulfillment of Old Testament promises and how the temple, the Levitical priesthood, and everything else that God instituted in the Old Testament were types and shadows of Jesus. They pointed forward to Jesus. In Hebrews, you even have a, a list of all these famous heroes of the faith, and it turns out they come from the Old Testament. And this shows us that the Old Testament, that Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament are in the same line of inheritance. So I love the book of Hebrews for, for many different reasons, but mainly because of how Christological and covenantal it is. Now Caleb has a question about church officers. He asks, what does a deacon do? So there are two kinds of church officer in the New Testament, elders and deacons. And so at Grace, we have two kinds of officer, elders and deacons. Now, the easiest way to tell them apart is by where their work is focused. So elders focus on guidance and deacons focus on service. Now, in the Bible, you can find the story of when deacons were first instituted. That's in Acts chapter 6. And if you read Acts chapter 6, you find that there was a problem that deacons were introduced in order to solve. The apostles 
They were the elders of the church at that time, but they were so busy with uh, the work of teaching and spiritual guidance and leadership that the physical needs of people in the church were not being met. They weren't being overseen correctly. So deacons were appointed in order to pick up that slack, in order to focus on that work of service. We read that originally they picked out seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom. And all these centuries later, we're still doing the same thing. We choose deacons and ordain them from among uh, men with, with servant hearts in our congregation. Today, deacons are the officers that you talk to when you have physical needs that the church can help with, when you want to help meet the needs of others. The deacons also take care of a lot of practical work related to the church, making sure that the church's various ministries and, and, and works are supported the way that they need to be supported. So that's what deacons do. Now it's time for the big question. This week's big question comes from Noah, who wants to understand one of the ways that God describes himself in Scripture. Here's the question. What does God as a jealous God mean? Is he jealous that we got to live on earth? Well, Noah, what makes this question so interesting is that it sounds so contradictory. We're told that jealousy is bad and that we shouldn't be jealous. And we're also told that God is perfect and, and, and incapable of sin. And then God tells us that he's a jealous God. So is jealousy bad or not? And what is God jealous about exactly? First, I want us to take a look at the context in the Bible where God describes himself this way. Now, the most famous example of this is going to be in Exodus chapter 20, the second commandment, which forbids the making and worshiping of idols. So let's take a look at Exodus 20 verses 4 through 6. It reads this way, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So, what does God mean by, I am a jealous God? When you read the second commandment, it becomes a little clearer God means, I don't want you worshiping other gods who are just false gods. You should worship me alone because I made you. And the reason I made you was to worship and glorify me. So jealousy, in this case, when we apply the idea of jealousy to God, it works as an analogy. It's a way to explain something about God by relating it to human experience. So, so that we can understand God's complexity, something that is uh, a little bit strange, but is, is part of our experience is, is attributed to God, if that makes sense. In this case, it's, 
to do with human emotions. So if you bear with me, let's talk about human emotions for just a minute. When you love someone, someone who should love you, and instead that person loves someone else, then the emotion that you feel is what we call jealousy. You feel jealous because they're showing attention, not to you, but to someone else. Now, is it wrong to feel jealous? Do you have a right to feel jealous? Well, you have a right to feel jealous only if you have a right to be loved by that person. So the reason that you often hear jealousy described as something bad, something you you shouldn't be, is because jealousy is bad when you have no right to the love that you are expecting. Or when you think that someone you love loves someone else, but they really don't. Uh, Shakespeare, by the way, wrote a whole play about that. God does have the right to be loved by his creation. So when we worship idols instead, God is, in human terms, entitled to be offended. And so that's why God is described as a jealous God. The main thing to remember when you hear, I am a jealous God, you want to always think of this in the context of true and false worship. That God is jealous means God insists on true worship. God insists that his people worship him. He insists that human beings made in his image worship him and love him. Now, by the way, God is not jealous that we live on earth as if he's you know sad that he doesn't get to live on earth. You have to remember, God made earth as a place for us to live. He gave this creation to us as a gift that we could enjoy and have dominion over in his name. So he made the earth as a place for us to live, but then he also came to earth in the flesh and lived here with us in the life of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. And when Jesus returns to earth, God will dwell with us in the new heaven and new earth, and we will worship him as we were made to. There will be no question of jealousy at that point. So Noah, it's a wonderful question, a complicated question, but that in a nutshell is why God describes himself as jealous. It's because God insists on being worshiped by human beings who he made in his image to reflect his glory. And now in our closing segment, let's answer a couple of fun questions from Caleb and Benton. The first question from Caleb is about Jesus's name. He asks, what was Jesus's last name? Interesting question, Caleb. Now, you probably know that in different cultures, names work differently. So what we're accustomed to in American culture is that people have first names and last names, but that's not the way it works everywhere. Sometimes people don't have first name, last name. Sometimes they're reversed, and and a person's last name comes first, and their first name comes last. In other cultures, especially historically, instead of having last names, people were uh, distinguished from one another. You could tell uh, two guys with the same name apart because they would have some kind of a, a nickname 
added onto their name, or maybe a place name referring to where they came from. So, for example, in the Bible, there's a guy called Joseph of Arimathea, and of Arimathea is not his last name, it's where he comes from. But by calling him Joseph of Arimathea, you can tell him apart from other Josephs in the Bible. Now, in Israel, in that culture, the way it worked was this. Your, your last name, so to speak, was based on your father's name. So, Caleb, in your case, we would call you, in Israel, Caleb, the son of David. But the way that you say son of in Hebrew is Ben, so we would call you Caleb Ben David. And that would be your name, first name, last name in American terms. So to know what Jesus's last name was, all you need to know is what his father's name was. And people probably would have called Jesus, Jesus Ben Joseph. But the funny thing here, of course, is that Joseph wasn't actually the father of Jesus. God was. So if you want to know the, the real name of Jesus, he was Jesus, the son of God. Our last question for this episode comes from Benton. And really, I could do a whole episode on this one question. You'll see why in just a minute. Benton asks, of all the wars you've learned about, which is your favorite? Well, I have always loved military history, and that probably comes through because I refer to it from time to time. I loved it so much when I was younger that I actually wanted to be a military historian at one point. That didn't work out, but, but I still have an interest in uh, the history of, of human conflict. As a kid, I was always interested in World War II. I found that fascinating. And, and of my generation, that was kind of the war we all knew about and, and were obsessed with. And I still find it fascinating and, and learn new things about it every day. But in college, I had this epiphany, this, this awakening. Ken Burns, the documentary filmmaker, made a documentary about the Civil War. And when that aired, during my college years, it turned a bunch of us onto the Civil War in a way that we, we really just hadn't been interested in it before, and also introduced me to the historian Shelby Foote, who wrote a three-volume history of the Civil War that, that made it one of my favorite conflicts to study. Uh, and this is saying something, because I grew up really not caring at all about the Civil War. But I'll tell you this, the war that I wish someone like Shelby Foote would have written about is actually the Napoleonic War, or to be more precise, Napoleonic Wars, because basically from the 1790s until 1815, there was this series of wars, and, and this constituted what was really the very first world war, because the conflict happened globally. It was one of the most complicated and interesting conflicts, just fascinating on every level, all of it centering around the French Revolution and the Emperor Napoleon and all of these nations fighting against the French to try to conquer them. And people often don't realize it, but the, the peace that ended that war in 1815 really did a lot to shape the modern world, the way that we see things now. So 
of all of the wars that I've learned about Benton, the one that I think is the most fascinating and kind of most interesting to study is the Napoleonic Wars. Great question. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.